Speed up with podcast speed up. Rationally Speaking is a presentation of New York City Skeptics, dedicated to promoting critical thinking, skeptical inquiry, and science education. For more information, please visit us at nycskeptics.org. Welcome to Rationally Speaking, the podcast where we explore the borderlands between reason and nonsense. I am your host, Massimo Piliucci, and with me as always is my co-host, Julia Galef. Julia, what are we going to talk about today? Massimo, today we're going to discuss a phenomenon sometimes known as neurobabble. So essentially this refers to people concluding things from neuroscientific evidence uh, in a way that's either jumping to false conclusions or misinterpreting the neuroscientific evidence or or even coming to logically incoherent conclusions uh, about about neuroscience or about how our consciousness or our psychology works based on neuroscience. Now, so we touched a little bit of that um, in, with a guest that we had not long ago, uh, Cordelia Fine, and that was focused on, on neurosexism, I suppose. Yeah. So actually, there's, I mean, there's two components or two main components to this phenomenon. There's um, just interpreting results wrong because of uh, the, you know, the studies being conducted poorly, like because of methodological sloppiness. And then there's just this conceptual problem. Of, of jumping to conclusions that you realize are either not actually supported by what you concluded, uh, by what the neuroscientific evidence showed, or at least not not supported uniquely, like that there's other ways of interpreting it that you hadn't uh, that you hadn't been thinking of, or or jumping to conclusions that are just sort of philosophically incoherent. So yeah, I'd say it's partly methodological and partly conceptual. Yeah, we we could talk about both uh, both areas and also. Oh, about... and actually, oh, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I just realized that one of our other recent episodes also was relevant. It was the episode on free will, that right. there's, there's a lot of neuroscientific evidence that people want to interpret as either supporting free will or not supporting free will. Right. And uh, just to refresh people's memories, I, I think, Massimo, I think you and I were pretty strongly in agreement that, um, that the question of free will was really more of a philosophical question than a, an empirical question that could be answered by neuroscience. So that actually is a good example. Right. It is a good example. Although I think that my take, at least on that, on that particular question, is that the neuroscience is certainly relevant. In fact, that's my take in general about the, the difference between philosophy and science, which is the philosophy is about conceptual qualifications uh, of what we think and, and why we think it. And science is about the necessary empirical background for that conceptual uh, qualification. So if we're talking about uh, free will, the philosophers can talk about what exactly people mean by it or what might, they might mean, and, and they can dissect the concept. Uh, some of the evidence from neurobiology will be relevant and some won't. Uh, in fact, the best thing that could happen is actually, which it does happen occasionally, is for philosophers and neurobiologists to work together so that uh, the neurobiologist doesn't make claims that are that, that, that go into the philosophical area without understanding philosophy and vice versa, that the philosopher doesn't say things that are actually inconsistent with you know, factual evidence from science. Now, uh, then I'm actually somewhat misremembering uh-huh. Uh, our degree of agreement. Fortunately, it's from, on tape. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, actually, maybe this is why we get along so well. I just consistently like misremember the degree to which we agree, and I think that we agree more than we that, do. So that's right. By the, by the so same friendly. episode, you will remember. Uh, you know, uh, have forgotten this disagreement. Yeah, and, <laughs> definitely. And it'll be fine. But so my just very, really briefly, my take in that episode was that uh, there was no neuroscientific evidence that could possibly bear on the question of free will because. The only two logical possibilities are either that our brains are are deterministic in the sense that you know everything that we think had a cause that had a cause that had a cause that had a cause, a cause etc. And and you know we don't have control over the uh, the deterministic um, 
that deterministic process from you know the first cause of our brain being created to what we are currently thinking now, or uh, or there's some randomness, potentially some quantum randomness in how our brains make decisions. Right. But that also doesn't actually give us any free will because you know obviously we can't have any control over random processes. So you know it's either one or the other, some, some combination of the two. But none of those possibilities allow for what people colloquially like to think of as free will. So, so to me, it didn't seem like neuroscience actually bore on that question and that all of the neuroscientific evidence that people thought was relevant was, was irrelevant. So yes, but, I thought that was an example of neurobabble. Sorry. No, that's say? okay. Uh, but what, one of the, um, yeah, I mean, I don't want to revisit that discussion too much, but uh, the, the, the interesting idea there, I think, is that then uh, you, you refer to as the colloquial uh, understanding that people have yeah, of free like will. Yeah, the folk concept of right. free will. But now philosophers have uh, something a little more sophisticated than the colloquial or folk concept uh, in mind. And in fact, they have several different things in mind when they talk about free will, several different characteristics of, of that free will. Now, okay, some so of which are relevant, uh, I should say, actually, for some of which the neurobiology is relevant because one of the components of free will is certainly the human ability to engage in decision-making. Uh, you know, or in right. circumstances, okay, so that is, that is relevant right. in one so sense. Relevant, yeah. So this this isn't actually a total tangent because one of no. the inspirations for this episode was uh, a recent article in Slate, Massimo, that you right. linked me to, uh, you pointed me to, uh, by uh, Ron Rosenbaum, yes. and it was about what neuroscience can tell us about the question of who is evil and whether whether evil is even a meaningful concept. Right. So I mean, so free will is relevant to that because. Some people will say, well, if neuroscience shows that there's no such thing as free will, then, you know, you can't actually blame anyone for their, uh, for the actions that seem evil to us. And so we can't actually judge any person as evil. Right. Well, before, uh, before we get into the details, that, that's a very interesting article, which actually then, then touches on other issues, not, not just evil per se, although that's the right. major topic. Um, but, um, you know, one of the, the classical um, sort of objections to talk of evil um, that, that uh, probably most skeptics would uh, be sympathetic to is that, oh, well, evil, it's a metaphysical concept. And, you know, it's, it's basically religious, of religious origins and so on and so forth. But uh, Rosenbaum points, points out actually the atheists, even prominent atheists, use the word. Uh, like Christopher and, Hitchens. Well, like Christopher yeah. Hitchens. So there's this quote from Christopher Hitchens, uh, who says, who invoked uh, the, the word evil in his uh, obituary of uh, Osama bin Laden. And uh, Rosenbaum says that Hitchens admits wishing he could avoid using, quote, that simplistic but somehow indispensable word, uh, unquote, and, but that Hitchens feels compelled to call whatever motivated bin Laden a force. <laughs> that quote absolutely deserves to be called evil. So this I'm is actually... I'm going to interpret that figuratively. Sure. Yes. We can... Give absolutely. I don't, think, yeah, I don't think that Hitchens meant that, literally. But it, it does mean that, the, that there is something to the concept um, that can be used uh, even by... It, essentially, what Hitchens is referring to there is, is moral responsibility. Right, of you, you do want to get to moral responsibility. Yeah. And one of the dangers in the uh, sort of neural attack on... on um, uh, uh, on the concept of evil is that uh, essentially you define it away and in in the process you also define away moral responsibility and that would be a problem yeah although uh, so for example one of the neuroscientists cited in the article uh, simon baron cohen correct that's he, what i was going yes yeah <laughs> actually i think we discussed him in our episode with cordelia fine because he did mm -hmm. a lot of research purporting to show innate differences in the way men and women think right which, and fine was pretty critical of yeah the, she was uh, she pointed baron out some cohen. pretty serious methodological flaws but should we point out that he's the cousin of sasha I wasn't I going to I because I, I feel like that was un unfair to him. <laughs> I liked how in the article by Ron Rosenbaum, he pointed that out and said that uh, Simon was the cousin of Sasha Baron Cohen. And then he said, but he's a respected neuro <laughs> neuroscientist. Right. <laughs> okay. Uh, anyway, so, so... Now we got so, that out of the way. Yeah, so, so <laughs> you got it out of your system? Mm -hmm. Simon Baron Cohen uh, basically argues that wh when what we talk about is evil, what we understand is evil, is essentially the absence of a capacity for empathy... 
Right. And that you can actually measure that in the brain. So he's like, he's like defining, or he's, it's, it's actually unclear the extent to which he's actually making a claim about how evil works in the brain versus just redefining the word to mean the absence of empathy. Cause it doesn't, that didn't actually really seem like a complete, like the absence of capacity for empathy really captured what people refer to as evilness. Right. For, for a variety of reasons. So, um, Rosenbaum again is, is I think very sharp in, in his, in, in his article in Slate because he points out a couple of things about, um, Baron Cohen's position. First of all, um, just to quote the article again, uh, it says, I am left with a non-empathetic feeling that, he's, that his, Baron Cohen's boast, that he's replacing evil with non-empathy is more a semantic trick than a scientific discovery. That is, you know, right, the right. guy's engaging in changing terms. And while the lack of empathy may sound more scientific than uh, evil, uh, if that's all it is, if there's no content to the, to the, to the concept, we're not very, very in, in a very different position. But more importantly, I think that, that Rosenbaum points out that if you go that route, you also define a way abolish, uh, you abolish good. Right, yeah, right. that was a sharp point. I liked that. Uh, and, and that is, again, one of the things we really don't want to do. I mean, we, we, we want to uh, maintain some sense of moral responsibility, both in the positive and the negative. Otherwise, we, we will have to come to a view of human action where nobody's responsible for anything uh, because, you know, quote, unquote, my brain made, it, made me do it. Well, what else could it possibly be that made you do it, right? Your brain is, in fact, where decision-making happens. So, yes, your brain made you do it. Yeah. You know, I think I said this at the end of the Free Will episode, but just to reiterate, that actually... Uh, Defining away the um, the idea of moral responsibility doesn't bother me too much because I think that functionally we can continue on just as we always have, just by behaving as if there is such a thing as moral responsibility. And yeah, be- I know. Because it, you know, we want to incentivize helpful behavior and and punish harmful behavior. That's still that doesn't change regardless of whether we think people are responsible for the helpful and harmful behavior. Well, we can disa- do things I, to make them more inclined to be helpful or harmful. I disagree, because if we arrive to a society, at a societal... I mean, obviously, this is a matter of, a, a question of, fa- of, of matter, empirical, of empirical evidence, right? You know, is there such a thing as moral... Actually, that's not. Let me rephrase it. If it's both a philosophical, again, and an empirical question, you know, is there such a thing as moral responsibility, and what do we mean by that? Mm-hmm. But if we do away with it as a society, I do think that would have big consequences. You can't, once once you, fi- you, you, you think that there is no such a thing as moral responsibility, you can't not go on and pretend that there is it's like well by uh, we i sort of meant like scientists and oh i see skeptics. so it would have to be a necessarily secret releasing this to <laughs> i the see public. but the, the cat is out of the bag already Shoot. <laughs> in that okay, sense wait. right abort abort <laughs> exactly i mean that's the problem I and mean, that, that would that sounds to me like a lot like uh, you know pascal's uh, reasoning in, in his famous wager where he what? says well yeah where he says well here's the analogy it's it, it's it's not a direct uh, one to one. Dare analogy. you, sir? I know, but but uh, it, 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 there is something to it. You know, what Pascal said: Look, we cannot actually say whether there is a god or not, or not. So you have to pretend to believe because it's a good it's a good bet. Now, you, okay, I don't think that's a good analogy. But... He actually was talking about pretending. Now, so do we have to pretend? If we agree no. that there is no such thing as moral responsibility, do we have to pretend? Because to say that we have to behave as if it's to say that we have to pretend. No, not? I just meant reward helpful and punish harmful behavior, just as we always have. That, that right. reward and punishing doesn't actually depend on us thinking that people have free will to choose helpful and harmful behavior. But this is actually getting a little yes, it's going out philosophical the... and off track. I think we should probably talk a little more concretely about what neuroscientific evidence we're referring to. Sure. So uh, one of the most common is fMRIs. So a lot of the popular press reports of, of neuroscientific evidence that, that I would call neurobabble. I should say that, that a lot of the, what I'm calling neurobabble, what people call neurobabble, is, occurs at the popular press level when they're, they're interpreting neuroscientific results. But some of it occurs, I think, at the, at the level of the neuroscientists themselves, who are just sort of not quite thinking clearly about uh, 
oh, what yeah. their oh, actual absolutely. evidence uh, suggests. There, there are several technical papers, even even technical papers in the prominent literature, where neuroscientists actually make claims about having uh, eliminated uh, the concept of morality or eliminating concept of free will yeah. and so on and so forth. When it, when it's pretty clear that they don't know, literally they don't know what they're talking about right. in that case. So you know, so, it, it's not just the general press. Um, right. Of course, the general press is particularly bad in that, yeah. in that regard. But right, which is to be expected. Um, but so one of the most common ways. Uh, maybe I should call them neuro fallacies. One of the mm. most common neuro, like instances of neuro fallacies that I see is that it seems like this happens at least every couple of months. Another article comes out in the popular press about how fMRIs can show whether you're really in love or not, or whether you really have empathy or not, because scientists have located the region of the brain in which love resides, or the region of the brain in which empathy resides, and so it's very easy. You just go into the scanner and uh, and you know look at a picture of your wife. And scientists can tell you whether you really love her or, you know, you look at a picture of someone in pain and scientists can tell you whether you really have empathy. And this is problematic for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, Although before I get into that, maybe I should talk a bit about what fMRIs are actually measuring because that's really relevant. Yeah, because that is one of the the issues. Exactly. That that would be on the side of the methodological side of the problems that I was talking about at the beginning of the episode. So, So fMRIs are actually not directly measuring neural activity. Neural activity is chemical signals and, and electrical potentials. So fMRI measures changes in the oxygen content of blood in the different parts of the brain. So, And the reason that's relevant is that as the more brain cells fire, the more oxygen they use. And so then oxygen in, oxygenation in that area increases to compensate for the oxygen used by the brain cells. And so that increases what gets picked up by fMRI. But even that isn't quite complete because fMRIs can measure activity in a region of in the regions of the brain, but there's always sort of background activity in the brain. So when, when scientists say that there was increased activity in a region of the brain, what they're doing is comparing the brain scans or the fMRIs of people, uh, say, uh, experiencing empathy to people not experiencing empathy or, you know, people looking at a picture of their grandmother to people not looking at a picture of their grandmother. The part of the brain responsible for face recognition would show more, rec- more activity in the people who are looking at the picture of their grandmother than those who weren't. Um, but even that, that's sort of just, that's a statistical, uh, like it just means that on average, there was a statistically significant increase in activity in this region for the recognition task. Right. So it's not actually as direct as let me make an analogy there because, um, uh, science um, often runs into these kinds of problems. That is, when, when there is a new cool technique or a new cool conceptual advance, advancement in science and, and people jump on it and start doing a bunch of research on it. And then, however, they, they start overclaiming or they start making claims that, are, that go way beyond the, the, mm-hmm. the evidence. The classic example of this is the concept of heritability. Heritability? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's been, you know, for decades, there have been these discussions back and forth about what exactly it is that you can claim about heritability. So you hear things like, oh, you know, uh, intelligence in human beings is 80% or 60% heritable. And most people, including, unfortunately, some scientists, but certainly a lot of people in the, in the, in the, in the media and uh, sort of popular science popularizing and so on, seem to, to think that that means that, you know, 60 to 80% of the inheritance of that trait is controlled by the genes and the rest is is a result of environmental influences. Well, in fact, the term heritability refers to a very specific uh, statistical construct which actually only measures the correlation between genetic variation uh, in a population and variation in the trait in question that's in intelligence. So really, heritability explains the amount of variation in intelligence that is correlated with the amount of variation in the genes. That's not Mm -hmm. at all inheritance. Right. Uh, Do you think that mistake is made just by the 
the public or by science writers, or are there scientists who confuse that too? That particular mistake seems to be limited mostly to science writers, uh, journalists, and the public. Although I have actually, I do actually have examples of scientists, um, not not population genetic, no quantitative geneticists who are the professionals in the area, but still biologists who do make that kind of mistake. The problem is that even the, the specialists uh, make um, you know overconfident claims based on measure availabilities because they don't seem to be particularly aware of you know the statistical assumptions that go into making the calculations, the the, the intricacy of the experimental design and therefore the kinds of things that you can and cannot control for and so on and so forth, mm-hmm. which is why there is a huge technical literature on that. So it's a similar situation where you have certain interesting techniques, certainly it tells you something interesting about, in this case, how the human brain works, in the other case, how human characteristics are inherited. But um, it's very easy because of the, comple- the technical complexity and the conceptual uh, you know, uh, sophistication mm-hmm. of, the, of the underlying ideas, it's very, very easy to overstep your boundaries and then just go on and say things that actually make no sense. Right, right, absolutely. Uh, and while we're talking about some of the methodological problems with, uh, with interpreting fMRI the way people tend to, we should mention that there's a whole bunch of other problems. Uh, first of all, all brains are, are at least a little bit different. So even if we knew for certain yeah. that, that there's a single region responsible for, you know, let's say, uh, jealousy, the jealousy region in me is going to be slightly different in size and shape and location than the jealousy region in you. And then, uh, so, so that's the source of variation. Then there's the source of variation just of background brain activity. Cause you know, as I was saying, the measure of activity in a region is relative to the background brain activity. Right. And then, and then people could also vary in how susceptible their neural patterns are to experimental conditions. Cause the, these results, when we have people experience love or empathy or recognition, these are all in experimental conditions. They're inside this giant fMRI machine. This is not exactly like a natural in the right. field experience. And so some people's like, maybe you love your wife greatly, but while you're, you know, stuck inside several thousand pounds of fMRI machine, you, you can't like summon up the feeling as much when looking at her picture as like another person could. And so maybe scientists would then conclude from that, that you don't love your wife as much as that other person loves his wife. Yes. Um, and by the way, I don't know if you ever had actually the experience. I've had the experience of being an F- F- MRI machine, not, not for so brain imaging. I'm so claustrophobic. Yeah. I'm really nervous about having to do it someday. What right. was so it like? I had to do it. And it is, in fact, kind of interesting experience. I mean, I'm not claustrophobic, but it is an interesting experience. It's very difficult, actually, to, I would imagine, to concentrate on a task. Um, in fact, the, 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 uh, the thing that everybody tells you when you go in the machine, simply not to concentrate on anything just keeps you know as still as possible and not oh, think about anything so hard it's like it don't think about hard. a white dog <laughs> yeah exactly well we talked about this in the meditation episode you yes. and i both have a difficult time like not thinking right now for instance here's another thing that that um, one of the problems with um, uh, claims of uh, of uh, based on fmri is of course that it that it's there's quite a bit to be debated there about what exactly the claim is because right. if the claim is that you know certain areas of the brain uh, are involved in which is a sort mm-hmm. of some, some Neutral, it's a fairly neutral term. Involved in X, where X could be you know, being in love or, or making decisions or whatever. Um, despite the caveat that you brought up earlier, which is that we're not really measuring brain activity directly. It's not in real time. It's a statistical construct of a bunch of individuals and so on and so forth. I, I think most, most scientists would say, even most philosophers would say, yeah, that's still a reasonable claim. Mm-hmm. Now, it becomes much stronger when one says, well, you know, like Baron Cohen does, well, there are 13 areas of the brain that cause... Yeah, uh, you know, empathy tricky. or lack of empathy or something like that. First of all, 13 areas of the brain, it's a large part of the brain, <laughs> right? And, and we know that the effects are not additive. I mean, these things interact with each other in, in complex ways, which are not captured actually by an, by an fMRI scan, number one. But second of all, of course, the, the, the obvious objection there is that all you're showing is a correlation. It's not actually a uh, causal connection. The causal, I'm right. Surely there is a causal connection at some level because, again, of course, your brain made you do it. What else could possibly make you do it? But it's, very, it's much, much more difficult to, to get to the, to the causal connection. In fact, 
classical strain, uh, studies in neurobiology that deal with uh, brain, uh, you know, in- brain injuries, uh, either caused by operations or by accident, get arguably a little closer to causal connections because there you're actually, in some sense, manipulating part of the brain. You know, you're taking out a part of the brain. For instance, you're cutting the corpus callosum. The objection to those, of course, is that those are ing- incredibly gross from the point of view of anatomy. I mean, you're cutting mm-hmm. an entire area uh, that probably does a bunch of different things. Right. And so whatever the results are, um, it's, it's very difficult to interpret, to, to say how they would apply to a normally functional brain under normal, uh, normal conditions. Right. I was talking to a philosopher of mind a while ago about how difficult it is to conclude that a particular psychological function is performed by a particular brain region. And he had a great analogy that I'm going to share with you. So he said, imagine you're running a, a desktop computer and you're, you're, you can observe which parts of its hardware are active during you know, various procedures that the computer carries out. And you notice, say you're, you're interested in uh, what parts of the computer are responsible for um, complex graphic displays. Uh, so I'm trying to make this as analogous as possible to neuroscientists' questions about what parts of the brain are responsible for right. X function. Anyway, so let's say you notice that one part of the computer is only active when complex graphics are displayed, and it's always active when those graphics are displayed, and you observe that when you take out that component, complex graphics can't be displayed. So this is, this is like pretty strong evidence. This is, this is better than like yep. neuroscientists usually have. So you might conclude that like the only the only way to to explain those that experimental result is that that component is like the part that causes that like does the complex graphics processing and displaying. Um, but another possible explanation, which throws a, a wrench in the gears, is that it could be that complex graphics are done by some other component, um, maybe like the same component that does all the other kinds of processing. But but because but when complex graphics are processed. Uh, they're more energy intensive and so they produce more heat. And so the component that you had been observing all the time is actually just a cooling device, which maintains a safe temperature in the computer. And so if you remove the cooling device, I mean, so that would explain why it's always activated uh, when graphics are being displayed. And then it also explains why when you remove it, uh, there are these automatic safeguards that prevent the the other processing unit from from displaying the graphics, recognizing that the cooling unit is gone and so it's not safe to actually produce graphics. So, I mean, that may seem like a bit of a contrived example, but no, it's not I, at all I, I think impossible to think point. that the yeah. brain could could have you know similar kinds of things that yep. that prevent us from from drawing these conclusions we want to draw, even with such complete evidence. Absolutely, and, and in fact, again, the analogy as a biologist, the analogy goes uh, comes to mind with uh, genetics. So, for a long time, there's been all these these claims about you know we found the gene for. Um, you know, whatever, you name it, for obesity, for homosexual behavior, for being, you know, not such a nice person, for uh-huh. being a skeptic, for, you know, in fact, just recently I read an article about uh, the gene uh, for that, that separates uh, conservatives from, from progressives. Oh, my God. <laughs> and, you know, this is all very interesting. But in fact, the claims go way beyond what is reasonable to make. First of all, because as usual, when people make claims like, oh, I found the gene for, if you look at the details, what they found is a single allelic variant that is a single form of the gene that actually accounts, statistically speaking, for, you know, I don't know, something like 2% of the change of, of, of the variation in the behavior, whatever. Yeah, well, unfortunately, that's a long and not very catchy headline. <laughs> no, exactly. That, is, that doesn't make for a, for a good headline. But uh, the, the more direct analogy to the example that you were br- uh, bringing up earlier is this, this discussion that's been going on for decades. And I think it's actually finally tapering off in the, in the primary literature, but certainly not in the, in the public, um, as far as the public is concerned, about what, what is exactly, how do we exactly find, we find, find out about what genes do? Mm-hmm. And the idea is, well, if you mutate a gene, the classic idea in genetics is if you mutate a gene, so you turn it off basically artificially, mm-hmm. 
or you damage it artificially, you then look at the phenotype, you look at the traits of the organism, you look at the behavior of the organism, and you see which part of the phenotype is affected, and you say, aha, that gene causes that. Right, that kind of a similar it's a, Exactly, yeah. it's a very similar, very similar approach. But of course, it has been pointed out over and over that that isn't what, the, the way genes work. Right? So first of all, you're damaging a part. Mm-hmm. Genes work, don't work in isolation. They don't work in what's called additive, additive conditions. That is, that the effect of gene 1 is additional to the effect of gene 2, 3, 4, and so on and so forth. They interact with each other. We've known this for a long time. And in fact, finally, we, we, we started having the, uh, both the uh, mathematical tools as, as well as the empirical evidence to show how gene networks work. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we're find, finding out now is that, in fact, if you turn off a particular gene, uh, most of the effects of that, what, most, most of what that gene was doing is actually taken over by, the, by an instant rearrangement of the network. So the other genes start compensating oh, for these kinds so of things. so much harder. Which makes it incredibly harder. <laughs> I, of course, it's much more fascinating as a scientific oh, yeah, uh, but... Uh, issue. But I would be stunned if that, something like that were also not going on, probably, in fact, to a much higher degree, in the brain. Because right. after all, the human, be- human beings only have about twenty to 30,000 genes. If by gene you mean sequences of DNA that code for, for proteins. So the interaction between 20,000 genes is nothing compared to the interactions between billions and billions of neurons. Yeah. So you can imagine what that means in terms of, you know, if, you, if, right. if you follow that analogy, it really makes for a big cautionary uh, you know, statement about what you can tell from yeah. neurobiology. Especially because we, we can't at all be sure that the neurons work the same way in my brain as your brain. So Correct. You can't even... At least we do share the same genes. Yeah, and, exactly. And, you, know, and you, can do, you can go into direct analog- uh, homology between my genes and your genes, but certainly not between what my individual neurons do uh, in my brain as, as opposed to individual neurons do, or even fairly large chunks of, of the brain. Right. Now, one of the things we should talk about is why this is important, <laughs> mm-hmm. other than just you know, uh, yet another cautionary tale about scientists overstepping their, their, their mm-hmm. boundaries. Um, but before we get there, actually, so I, I want to talk about something that is in the, in the Slate article, and in particular, uh, Rosenbaum's critique of uh, David Eagleman's uh, Incognito, which is one of these new books that okay. talk about the brain, because it actually has very important... Uh, practical consequences. But back one more, one more comment about the, you know, what can you say about given the evidence? And uh, this is the third I, thing you've said you're going to talk about. I hope you actually talk about this one. Sure. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, I was going to bring up one of my favorite uh, villains in this area, and that's Sam Harris. Uh, as you know, uh, I have written very critically about the moral landscape uh, and his right, right. ideas about mm-hmm. you know, neurobiology um, and, um, and morality. But in the, one of the, the worst parts of the moral landscapes uh, comes when, when Harris actually uh, tells you in detail how he thinks, um, based on his own experiments, in fact, because he did a thesis in, in neurobiology, mm-hmm. um, and uh, based on his own experiments, it, it tells you something about why he's, he's suggesting that neurobiology will be the predominant way of looking at, at morality. Mm-hmm. And he basically says something on the lines of, of the following. Uh, um, our listeners can actually find the specific reference uh, on the blog because I, I've, I've blogged about this particular thing and there's, there's a reference to the specific um, uh, quote as well as page number in the book. But anyway, he makes the following argument. He says, look, we know that the brain makes certain kinds of, of truth judgments in the same way. Uh, it uses the same, sorry, it uses the same areas to make truth judgments. Uh, regardless of whether those truth judgments are concerned with, say, mathematical uh, propositions like 2 plus 2 equals 4 mm-hmm. uh, or factual propositions, uh, such as the earth goes around the sun, or moral judgments, such as it, it's true that genocide is a, is a bad thing. And then he goes on stunningly to say that from that, you can, tell, you can conclude that, a, that the brain does not make a distinction among these, those three kinds of judgments, fair enough, and therefore that there is no distinction among right, those three right, judgments, right. which is absurd. It's a, it's a complete non sequitur. That would be like saying that because we know 
that your brain, the same areas in your brain are turned on when you're having sex and when you're thinking about having sex, the two are exactly the same same kind of experience. I don't think so. Sure. I mean, yeah. Well, that... That may not actually be true. I don't know. But, but there are definitely, I've definitely seen evidence that the same area is activated when you're actually like swinging a bat mm-hmm. versus when you're simulate, like mentally simulating the experience of simulating a bat. Yeah. No, it's true also for yeah. the sex. Yeah, oh, it it's, is? It's, okay. It's, it's, it's similar parts, yes. Cool. <laughs> <Absolutely. laughs> okay, now can we, go, we, can, we can go back to, I guess, David Eagleman's. Um, so the reason Rosenbaum in, in Slate takes uh, to, to task Eagleman is, is a good example of what can happen when you, get, when you run away with these... Um, hyper-interpretation of neuro, neuroscience. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to quote directly from this late art- article here. He um, says, uh, Eagleman depicts an Orwellian future in which fMRI scans will be used to preemptively identify those who have the potential to commit acts formerly known as evil and prescribes for such possible malfeasance a regime of, quote, prefrontal workouts to, quote, better balance those selected, of course, he doesn't say how or by whom, for brain remodeling. And in fact, Eagleman goes apparently as far as saying, quote, some people will need to be taken off the streets on the basis of the fMRIs for a longer time, even a lifetime. Wow, this is neuro Wait, I'm sorry, is, is Eagleman advocating this <laughs> yes. or is he warning that this is what could happen? No, apparently that's really? a good idea. Okay. And by the way, Sam Harris advocates a similar thing at some point what? in his book. Absolutely. Uh, when he says that neuro, neuro scans will, uh, will allow us to tell whether people lie or not, and therefore we can impose uh, lying free areas wherever we like in, in a court of law or inside a, uh, you know, during a job interview or whatever it is by turning on these scans and, and basically uh, hmm. um, you know, forcing well, people it's a little different than keeping people off the, taking someone off the street for their entire life based on their brain scan but uh, I, yes but it's the same principle it's okay. the same idea of, in, of using a science which by the way it's far from being proven but even yeah, if it but were like proven you were saying someday yes but even if it were proven uh, you know there are all sorts of issues about you know I don't know civil liberties for instance uh, that needs to be taken into account you can't just say oh it's a great idea because we can do that scientifically, then, then absolutely. By, right, no, let's course. go out and, and take people off the streets or, uh, or enforce um, lying free zones. Yeah, whatever it is. and even so, currently today, as you know, as we were saying, this science is is far from being perfect, and and so part of the danger of uh, of this neurobabble, believing like leading people to believe that we can conclude more from the science than we currently can, is that neuroscience seems to be really persuasive to people even like even when it doesn't actually have anything to do with the claim that it's allegedly supporting so there was this a little disturbing study that came out maybe a year or so ago in which uh, the scientists gave people uh, a claim um and and they and the claim was followed by one of four different types of explanation either people got a good explanation that was like a logically sound like strongly empirically supported explanation for the claim or they got a bad explanation it's just like really logically incoherent and and didn't have good evidence or they got the good explanation combined with some irrelevant neuroscience i think it was pictures of brain scans (laughs) that like just had nothing to do with the actual claim in question or then and then the fourth group got the bad explanation combined with the irrelevant neuroscience and everyone judged the so okay. Everyone judged the good explanations as being more satisfying than the bad explanations. That's a good but, news. Yeah, so that's that's like a sanity check, right? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> like if that weren't true, then we should just you know ignore quit this. right there. Yes. Yeah, like, um, but the presence of the logically irrelevant neuroscience uh, evidence made people feel more satisfied by both the good and the bad explanations. Uh-huh. The only exception was neuroscience experts. <laughs> Really? Which, like, thank God, right? I mean, yes. if, but, at the very but, least, then. yeah. But even students in neuroscience classes, so students right. who knew something about neuroscience, were still more persuaded by explanations when they were accompanied by 
irrelevant neuroscience right. uh, well, evidence. That's, that's why we're doing these kind of podcasts, and that, that's why we are um, often, or certainly uh, even on the blog, um, pointing out when science oversteps boundaries, when the interpretation of scientific findings is oversold and so on and so forth. Because there is exactly that danger, that science yeah. has a very large uh, and well-deserved, of course, uh, uh, social cachet, except when it comes to climate change and evolution, for instance, mm-hmm. or vaccine and autism or something like that. Uh, but scientists themselves, that means two things. First of all, the scientists themselves need to be, have an ethical responsibility to make claims that are congruent with their evidence mm-hmm. and not, not overstepping their boundaries, certainly not when it comes to things that have a potentially large societal impact. Yeah, this is totally relevant to things like court testimony. I mean, for, in, this for, is example, for example, in fact, we're going to go there in, in, in a second. Uh, but it also means that scientists need to be careful because you know, they are uh, the beneficiary of a high degree of trust. Now, if you start making bad decisions based on bad claims... You know, trust erodes uh, over over time. For instance, mm-hmm. you know, um, it's uh, American science, uh, American biology in particular, went to a very low degree of trust uh, uh, after World War between between uh, the right before World War II and immediately after World War II because of the damage done by the eugenics movement. Right, right. right. It was very popular at one point. There were pl- prominent scientists who were backing up the ideas of eugenicists, and when that got started to, to be associated with, you know, the the Nazi um, uh, and what they were doing over over in Europe, then obviously they lost credibility and they lost. Uh, you know, input with, with the public. So you need to be careful. When you have trust, you have trust is, a, is something that needs to be managed very carefully. Not only from, obviously, ethic, an ethical perspective. I mean, it's just a bad idea from an ethical point of view to overstep your boundaries, but also even out of self-interest. Uh, if you start making claims that are, go way beyond what you can substantiate, at some point, uh, you know, th- somebody's going to ask, <laughs> right. why, why are you making these claims? Can I, I, you, mm- mentioned, yeah, you mentioned earlier the, the uh, judicial um, Yes. Uh, the legal implication right. of these things, right? Uh, again, of using neuroscientific evidence in right. court and how it has this really powerful persuasive effect on people even when it's completely irrelevant. That's right. So m- one case, of course, um, uh, first of all, it's, it, the, the article in Slate uh, cites this idea that this is now becoming the, the, the brain may me do it defense mm. in, in a bunch of, of, of cases, um, of individual cases. But there's this uh, the, the example that the author, uh, Rosenbaum, gets into some detail is very recent and it actually has, uh, goes all the way up to the Supreme Court. And this is a dissenting opinion by Justice Stephen Breyer uh, about a ruling, uh, if you remember a few months ago, there was this ruling denying the right of California to ban violent video games. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, Breyer dissented from the majority opinion who actually said that California cannot ban violent Mm -hmm. video games, even for children and so on and so forth. Um, And uh, Breyer cited uh, cutting-edge neuroscience, quote-unquote, uh, in, in favor of his, of his opinion, uh, where he was basically saying that, uh, that, that being exposed to certain violent imageries has certain, uh, you know, excites certain areas of the brain, and that shows that there is an effect oh, of the violence right. on the brain. Well, of course there is an effect of the violence on the brain. Whatever you, you're watching, I mean, I, I have to say, I have to disclose, by the way, that in that particular case, I actually agree with Breyer's minority opinion. Those, those video games should be banned. banned. I don't know if you actually looked at what these things done, but those are the kinds of things where main characters at some point at the end of the video game, they get literally ripped off um, and cut into, um, you know, there's a woman that gets cut into from the, from the, from the lower, lower parts of the, to, the, to the head. I mean, it's really stuff that yeah, I frankly don't graphic. think children should be exposed to, and I really don't buy Well, the, the question is just whether that decision should be in the hands of the parents or, or the government, right? We should do an episode on that, actually. We should do an episode about that. Um, But anyway, what I was saying was I was was disclosing my um, sort of, in in this case, I guess, political bias, which Uh is actually in favor of Breyer. Right, right. (laughs) But what I'm saying is that that was not the argument. That was not the way to argue about this case because everything that we're exposed to has an effect on the brain, a measure effect on the brain. So that is actually a fundamental, that would be an example of a fundamental conceptual or philosophical confusion. That thinking that, that seeing an effect of something in the brain 
is somehow like proves something about like that that's sort of a special case like no that is every case it's every case Um, exactly so that there's one other interesting and common philosophical conclusion or what i think is a philosophical conclusion that i want to talk about before we close and that's the the conflation of description with explanation Mm -hmm. so so I see this in a lot of neuroscience discussions that people seem to think that once you know which regions of the brain are associated with some particular behavior or you know psychological phenomenon, then you've explained that behavior or phenomenon. Right. But you haven't. It's still purely descriptive information. It's not explanatory. Uh, right. I mean, it, it's it's still usually valuable to know. Uh, I mean, it's it's valuable to have as complete of a brain function map as possible. But I, I don't think it's valuable in itself. It's valuable because it can help us in answering the explanatory questions that we really care about. Um, I can think of two ways it's helpful, actually. The first is that if we can say with confidence that a certain region is both necessary and sufficient for the experience of some, say, emotion, say, jealousy, then we can use that to do experiments on the causes or effects of jealousy sure. uh, because we're confident about that, um, about the location. And then second, learning about whether certain functions are localized in one place or not is helpful just in our general understanding of how the brain works. So it's not really the particular location of the function that's helpful here. It's just the fact of whether it does actually have a particular location or not. That's really important to know. Absolutely. And in fact, let's take your case of of jealousy. I mean, even under those ideal conditions you're talking about, one cannot simply conclude that therefore those areas of the brain cause jealousy. What one can conclude is that given a certain cultural milieu and certain behaviors from other people, those areas of the brains may be causally connected to the, to the uh, uh, reaction, you know, the emotion of jealousy. But if you cha- it's very possible, and in fact, we have examples of that, that we, if you change the cultural milieu, if, if, if the same kind of behavior, it's not culturally supposed to, to elicit jealousy, it will not. Um, regardless of the fact that people have the same brain. I mean, this, there was a very interesting study recently that I quoted in, uh, in, in, in the Rationally Speaking blog um, about the cultural dependency of the effect of alcohol. You know, most people seem mm-hmm. to think that, oh, alcohol it makes people more prone to uh, violent behavior and also to sexually overt behavior and that sort of stuff. Well, apparently, that is actually true only in certain cultures and not in others. It is true if you are in England. It's not true if you are in Italy. And even though <laughs> Italians drink just as much alcohol as, uh, as the Brits. So there's this <laughs> interesting study where, you know, the same chemical acts on the brain in the same way. You know, there's no claim here that the chemistry is different or that the brain structure is different, but, but the brain interprets what to do with certain situations depending on the cultural environment, mm-hmm. which means that you cannot limit yourself to just the brain. You have to take into consideration you know, the entire uh, cultural environment. Before we finish, I wanted to mention that there are several sources of uh, uh, available sources of neuroskepticism that, that people can actually get a, a, take a look at oh, when they have these things. So one of them is a blog called, appropriately enough, Neuroskeptic. Um, this is run by a, a neuroscientist uh, in, the, in the United Kingdom who takes a skeptical look at his own uh, field and beyond, as the mm-hmm. blog says. Um, I browse through some of the entries and there are some really interesting things, including uh, pretty recently a uh, post on what is brain activation on an fMRI. And so it goes oh, through great. the, and it's very detailed. I mean, the, the guy actually goes through the site's primary literature and explains on his blog the meaning of tables and figures and images and that sort of stuff. So it's, it's really well done. Um, another is uh, an article that is actually cited in the Slate uh, magazine article that we, we have been discussing for most of this time uh, is, uh, will be linked also to, from, uh, from the podcast website. It's by Jonathan Marks, um, and uh, it was published in uh, this last year, I believe. The title is A Neuroskeptic's Guide to Neuroethics and National Security. Uh, and that one uh, takes an interesting uh, look at the abuse that the government uh, is is doing or maybe doing, preparing to do uh, pretty soon about um, of neuro neuroscience um, 
uh, information. And finally, there's an interesting collection of essays. This is a book by MIT Press. It's called Neuroethics and Introduction with Readings, uh, where there is a, brain, a range of, of opinions and a, and a range on the, on the subject and a range of, of um, uh, topics that are covered. Uh, some of these include, um, you know, brain self and and concept of authenticity, brain readings, and what is what does it mean to do neuro- neuroimaging, um, the neurobiology of intelligence, that sort of stuff. Then it gets into neuroscience and justice, which is something that we briefly talked about, um, as well as uh, the idea of personhood and uh, and even in fact animal neuroethics, because of course there's no reason why you couldn't do fMRIs on you know cats and dogs right, and other things. So, Massimo, now the um, podcast ending spot in my brain is, is lighting up. And since I have no free will, I am compelled to do what it tells me to, which is I to announce that, was that we're our out producer. of time. <laughs> it was compelled you to do that. Yeah, but yes. hard to distinguish. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so, uh, so we're out of time, and we're going to move on now to the Rationally Speaking Picks. Welcome back. Every episode, Julie and I pick a couple of our favorite books, movies, websites, or whatever tickles our rational fancy. Let's start, as usual, with Julia's pick. Thanks, Massimo. My pick is a book that came out last year. It's called Rationality and the Reflective Mind by Keith Stanovich, who's a professor at University of Toronto. So this is a a really great comprehensive discussion of what current research to date has told us about rationality and about how the human brain diverges from rationality. And one of the reasons that I particularly appreciated it is that, so I've I've often read and talked to people about cognitive biases and logical fallacies, um, but they were never, the way they were stored in my brain, uh, all that information about biases and fallacies was sort of in a big heap, or or if you want to be more charitable, (laughs) a list. (laughs) But there was never, I never really had any sort of more organized way of understanding the relationships between the biases and fallacies, even though I had the vague sense that some of them were like, specific examples or, or, you know, manifestations of other biases or, you know, that certain ones were like, um, I don't know, generalizations of others anyway. But so this book has this really great comprehensive sort of bird's eye view taxonomy of how the biases and fallacies are related to each other. It's, and it's, it's very nice. It's clear and it's, and it's convincing. So just to give you a a brief taste, uh, there's sort of three rough types of bias of, of ways that human decision-making can go off the rails uh, the first is uh, just due to cognitive limitations, like it's just just efficiency. You know, the maybe the brain could actually do a better job of reasoning something out or of making a decision, but because we have limited you know time and resources and energy, it just defaults to a quicker and 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 imperfect process. And whether that be you know just drawing on one or two examples that come easily to mind that may not be representative, and then you know not worrying about it, or whether that be using intuitive and emotional decision-making processes instead of like the careful deliberative reasoning. And then the second category of biases and fallacies is what sometimes is called a mindware gap. Like it's reasoning Mm -hmm. incorrectly because you aren't actually aware of what the proper reasoning method is. So lack of understanding of basic probabilistic theory could lead to that or, or actually not knowing about certain logical fallacies is is pretty common that like you're reasoning correctly just because you don't know that that's wrong. And then the third category is sometimes called corrupted mindware. So that, that's <laughs> that's faulty reasoning, not as a result of the absence of knowledge about proper reasoning, but but instead the it's the result of the presence of false knowledge yes. about reasoning. So that could be the result of either uh, believing something about folk psychology or or just having sort of confused philosophical 
concepts like believing in a soul, for example, um, yep. or believing in, you know, the that you sort of exist in your brain, like that everything your brain produces is being viewed and experienced by you. And you're sort of this homunculus, like sitting in your brain in the Cartesian theater. Um, so that would be an example of corrupted mindware that leads to false reasoning. Anyway, it, uh, it's just, I really appreciated having this theoretical framework in which to think about biases and fallacies. And of course, Stanovich gets into more detail than that, but, uh, but that's a good starting place. Sounds good. The only bad thing about the book is not available for Kindle. Oh, so sorry, I, ju- I just sent an email to the publisher. Oh, good. It. You're so quick. <laughs> yes. It's, Either uh, that or I'm very long-winded. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I'm, I'm quick. Uh, so my pick is actually something called hypothesis.is. Um, we, we will link to the video, to introductory video of this thing. Um, it is a new initiative that is not out yet. So I'm not going to endorse it. I'm just saying that I'm very, very curious. I, and, I, and I heard of a couple of uh, colleague, uh, skeptic colleagues who are also very curious about this. Basically, this, is a, um, this will be when it comes out next year. Uh, it will be a broad uh, sort of social criticism and uh, peer review of the entire internet. Whoa. <laughs> yes, indeed. That's ambitious. It is ambitious. Of course, it will be done in stages. Um, uh-huh. And uh, now it, it's, th- these people seem to have thought quite a bit about what they're doing and how to implement it. Because other people have tried before, right? You know, Google has ratings all sort, on all sorts of things and, and on internet sites. Uh, there are, you know, Facebook has ratings and commentaries and all that sort of stuff. Uh-huh. But the claim by the, the people at Hypothesis is that none of this was actually um, uh, put together, taking into account exactly the, you know, the nature, the developing nature of the internet and, and, and what it's what is necessary and how it will work. Uh-huh. So the basic idea is that these people will provide a series of platform, for instance, uh, uh, web browser uh, extensions uh, for a variety of browsers uh, that will allow you when you read something on the internet, and that could be anything, uh, you know, uh, watch a video or read a blog or a, a newspaper article or something like that. It will allow you to interact with a broader community that sort of basically does these peer review, constant peer review and annotation and, and correction of, of anything that people are interested in. Uh, the people at Hypothesis claim that they will start with a broad base of experts uh, to begin with. So this is not just anybody. So it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's supposed to be a combination of crowdsourcing mm-hmm. and expertise. Mm-hmm. It's not just crowdsourcing because otherwise, as you know, I'm pretty skeptical of, of simple crowdsourcing. But right. when, if done well, simple I think crowdsourcing can, is Yahoo Answers. Yeah, and yeah, exactly, that precisely. <laughs> and that doesn't. And these people are aware of, of, of that, so they're, they're presumably going to be staying away. In fact, the call went out to the skeptic community to get involved, uh, and for people to volunteer as uh, experts. In, in, in a variety of areas. Oh, did so, you volunteer? Not yet. I'm looking at, I, I just looked at the video this morning and I'm going to be reading a, a, little, a little more. Uh, the, the people at Hypothesis are raising money. Um, they need apparently something like a half a million dollars to get started. And they are more than half away there already. Uh, so if people are interested, they should take a look at this. The idea sounds really good. Um, it sounds like it would be a very interesting improvement of your sort of internet experience, which is this day, most people's reading experience period right right um so it, we'll see how it goes maybe we'll revisit this uh, next year when it comes out uh and perhaps if we if we uh if the people involved are interested we can we can have them on the podcast and and chat about it they're gonna have to work pretty fast to outrun the growth of the of the internet <laughs> like yeah i don't think i don't the, know what kind of rate of i don't think the claim is that they're gonna to... do it uh, uh the claim is that they're gonna allow people you know they're gonna distribute uh, essentially tools that allow people to do these kind of things so they probably start with a core uh, one of their one of their examples was, for instance, you know, when you read the New York, did you know the New York Times uh, comment sections is often closed entirely, or it's closed after a certain period of time, so that people cannot comment anymore on certain, uh-huh. on certain articles. And he said, you know, the, the question was, well, why are, why not leaving open open perpetuity? But more importantly, the guy that in the video says, you know, why are the comments right at the bottom where pretty much nobody reads them? Mm. You think that if there is, for instance, some, something factually wrong with 
the article, uh, there should there ought to be a note, an annotation, you know, right by mm, interesting. exactly what, right when it is, where the problem is, and something that says, okay, there's a flag here, something is not, it's not right. Anyway, we'll, we'll see next yeah, year how these things, yeah, are, these people let's are going. Check in if it's going well. We should have them on the show. All right, we are more than out of time now. And Massimo and I would like to remind all of our listeners that the fourth annual Northeast Conference on Science and Skepticism, also known as Nexus, is coming up. It'll be on April 21st and 22nd of 2012. We encourage everyone to go to the website, nexus.org. That's N-E-C-S-S dot org for more information and to buy tickets. So this concludes another episode of Rationally Speaking. Join us next time for more explorations on the borderlands between reason and nonsense. The Rationally Speaking podcast is presented by New York City Skeptics. For program notes, links, and to get involved in an online conversation about this and other episodes, please visit rationallyspeakingpodcast.org. This podcast is produced by Benny Pollock and recorded in the heart of Greenwich Village, New York. Our theme, Truth, by Todd Rundgren, is used by permission. Thank you for listening. <laughs>